welcome to the Mega Vision Show, episode 98. The date is January 14th, 2022. My name is Chris Powell, and I'm the editor of Mega Visions. I want to let you know that there's going to be some changes in store for the Mega Vision Show, beginning with this episode. From now on, it's going back to being an audio podcast, and it's going to focus more on the week's news in retro and indie gaming. And we'll also feature interviews with members of the Megavision staff and also people that we interview in upcoming issues. I'm going to be your main host going forward, but don't worry because Graham and the rest of the staff are going to be joining the show from time to time. We want the podcast to be more relevant to the readers of the magazine and website, so we want to focus more on upcoming issues of the magazine. So like I said, the plan's to be able to bring writers and even our artists on the show to talk about their upcoming work in the issue. And we we hope that'll add uh, a little bit to the podcast and make it more of a companion to the magazine, kind of like how we originally set out to do. So with that said, we have a very exciting episode in store. Marcin Gulick is going to join me to break down this weekend news, where he reports on GameStop jumping into the NFT game because, hey, it's GameStop, so why wouldn't they, right? And then Sega's opening a new development studio in Japan, and that's always exciting, so we'll dive into that. Then later on, Christopher Wenzel joins us for a special report on his coverage of some big legal controversy that's hitting the fighting game community, and he lived and survived MAGFest 2022, Now he has to tell us all about it. Our featured guest this week is John Trevor, who goes by XBuds online. He's been one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. He's always spreading, you know, positivity and helping better the the community on Twitter there. And he's recently joined the Megavisions team as a contributing writer. In this upcoming issue, he has a review on Capcom's 1995 Saturn and PlayStation fighting game Cyberbots. I'm sure there's a few of you out there who are big Cyberbots fans. He joins us to tell us his origin story growing up as a Sega nerd, where he eventually started one of the earliest Sega Saturn fan sites, and ultimately how he became an Xbox guy who still bleeds Sega Blue. We have all this and more in this week's episode of the Megavision Show. All right, and join us with this week's uh, news is Marcin Gulick. How's it going? Hey, it's going. It's it's a pretty sluggish morning, but you know I have my tea and my mug of water, and I'm ready to go. It's the uh, it's our first show of the year, man. So it's 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 good to uh, to get you back on the Megavision show, and hopefully you'll be here on most every every episode uh joining me talking about the news i'm excited about this yeah you know we reboot the magazine and i'm part of a reboot of a podcast in a sense so (laughs) uh let's jump into it then let's uh let's see what we got for this week so this week we actually have a couple of stories the first one we'll talk about is uh gamestop and their dabble in the nft marketplace um so for those of you who don't know even though i feel like many people have have heard this uh acronym beat over their heads uh every day in the news is uh, nfts are basically non-fungible tokens and it's essentially a a form of verification for um different kinds of media for digital art for audio um for clips for in-game content um it's essentially a unique copy um, of the original, um, and it's supposed to be, you know, it's marketed as a, a good way for artists to maintain their 
um, authenticity in their art, um, whether you're a music artist or, or, or you know, a, a, what we call a regular artist. Um, and for GameStop, you know, they, they're, they're joining in on the trends. We've had Ubisoft, now we have GameStop. Um, and their stocks went up uh, in the past two or so weeks um, when they announced that they were joining the NFT marketplace. Um, there, according to an article by CNBC, uh, GameStop actually plans to establish crypto partnerships and create games and items for the marketplace. Um, so it should be noted that NFTs can sell for a hefty price. And the largest that we actually saw in 2021, it was for an art piece that sold for $63.9 million. So that GameStop saw the writing on the wall. Uh, they saw they could make money in that. Um, and they're jumping on the train. Uh, last year, also, people forgot they also had the uh, whole uh, fiasco with the Robinhood craze almost a year ago, actually, um, where their stocks were bouncing all over the place. So this is GameStop. I do next remember venture. that. And, I, and yeah. I, I was upset that I didn't get in on that action. You know, right. uh, I, I missed that train. But I don't think I'll be jumping in on this one either, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have I'm partaking in some cryptocurrency. I did I did the Dogecoin, and I I've been <laughs> keeping it. I do have some Shiba Inu. Yeah, I think my brother does just, but that, he I think he just did it because he has two Shiba dogs, and that was that was his his logic. <laughs> I feel like it's like reading tea leaves with with this kind of stuff. But uh, so, what do you think about the concept of NFTs? I thought. Because it's taken me a long time to understand what the whole concept and, and everything is with NFTs because it's a kind of a complicated subject. But I like the idea that it would give artists, uh, you know, a sense of digital ownership. Uh, but as it applies to video games, I don't really see how it's going to work, especially when some of the game companies have talked about how uh, people could own their own, you know, NFT skin, which would essentially allow you to, to carry that over from, you know, game to game. But we've seen in this week, several game developers have actually came up on, on Twitter and, and talked about how hard that would be to actually implement because, uh, you know, you can't really chain you know skin from game to game because the coding is all different there's so much different in between that uh that to be able to make that happen would be almost impossible very very hard so i don't really see how nfts are gonna last and make a, a, a at least a good impression uh on the gaming audience uh to, to make it stick around for a very long time yeah i mean i'm on the fence uh, on this subject personally um obviously in terms of um you know, some uh, insurance for artists to make sure that they can show some form of verification that they have the original art piece and, and people who who can freely, you know, make copies of them, uh, you know, understand that they don't have the original copy um, is, is a good thing. But on the other hand, there have been just so many um, problems with, with NFTs where there are scams. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of people... Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of artist scams that, that have happened um, that involved NFTs. Um, it's also been used for money laundering, and there are environmental issues with um, blockchain technology in general. Blockchain, uh, for people who don't know, it's basically like a digital ledger. So it's like if you were, went to a library and you had a book or a database of information, a blockchain is essentially... 
uh, that, but in a digital format. Um, and all this requires a lot of uh, electricity and energy. And that has uh, been an issue uh, that people have discussed, uh, environmental issues. Um, and, you know, how, how do we sustain that in the future, especially if we have stories that seem to be popping up like every couple of days with different companies, you know, in our realm, specifically game companies that jump in on this market, right? So that that is one issue. Uh, the other issue is the legality of it and the the gigantic vagueness of um, copyright. Uh, because right. uh, uh, oh, who was the Kill Bill director? Oh, Quentin Tarantino. Sorry. Uh, so in November, Quentin Tarantino actually uh, was selling NFTs of specific scenes from his movies. And Miramax, who owns the rights to his movies, uh, have said that they own the copyright and that is not legal. So we have these situations that just have not been hashed out in the court of law uh, frequent enough where, where we can kind of understand the legality of it um, sure. and what and the difference between copyright and, and an NFT. Right. Because that is that is something that is <laughs> still very much brand new um, NFTs of only been in the public spotlight since around 2017 started probably around 2014 so uh very very interesting but i i, I for gamestop uh hey you you do you i guess you, you want to try it you know ubisoft is trying it they have been crapped on to high heavens if you saw the youtube video they had around 96 percent uh dislikes and that's probably <laughs> Uh, partially why uh, YouTube also took down dislikes because people are probably complaining about that. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think all these game companies they're f trying to find new revenue streams. It's it's what they do, you right. know, their businesses, and so they see this as an opportunity, and everyone's jumping in on it right now. Uh, you know, we've heard that Sega was not going to do it, but now there's a report today that uh, Sega has filed for some sort of Sega NFT uh, in, in Japan. So it is it is strange. Uh, it sounds like everyone's going to be jumping in on it. Uh, but the public backlash is real, and it, I don't think that's going to be going away. And so it's going to be interesting to see how these companies are going to handle that uh, from a you know customer uh, you know standpoint, and then also how they're going to implement this on the business side if and when they ever do. I'd be like, I'd also believe like just having goodwill from companies uh, if they're doing NFTs and, and uh, this basically uh, this capitalism of of um, of just every every little aspect, you know, a, a level, a, a skin, a, a, a arts, you know, like Steam and Valve, I believe, have banned the that concept on their um, platform. Because, you know, modding communities are big and gigantic and, um, you know, just the just the ability to freely, you know, add things and take things away to existing games has been I felt it just kind of keeps flourishing the community. And I, I don't think I would view it as as a bad thing uh, on the company side. It just also provides goodwill for fans. Um, and introducing this this concept of NFTs into you know uh, every aspect of a video game uh, is it, it just for me is a, is a little too much, and I feel like they should not be involved uh, in 
in in doing that. Um, but maybe I'm just an old man who was behind the times. But I guess we'll see. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think so, because I, I, I do think that uh, this is an important issue. I think we need to keep talking about it, because uh, if if we stop talking about it and and allow the companies just to, to you know, and, and everyone stops talking about it, they're going to implement this stuff regardless. So uh, if if we need to be talking about it and, and making sure people uh, understand what's really going on out there. Uh, so I, I think we'll keep talking about this another time uh, because I don't think, like I said, it's going to be going away. So yep. let's keep moving. We'll see what GameStop's going to be doing with NFTs. I'm sure they'll uh, they'll do something else next week to piss people off. Yeah, and and you can go on our website and, and see the latest story because there there won't be a short supply. Um, so the, our next story is uh, Sega unveiling supported languages uh, in Sonic Frontiers. So there has been a campaign that we've been covering on Megavision's website, uh, specifically uh, Brazilian Portuguese fans who wanted um, uh, essentially localization to support you know their their language through subtitles. Um, and also dubbing. Um, so s- the Sonic the Hedgehog uh, Twitter profile around four days ago officially announced um, their supported languages uh, that will be voiced and subtitled. So uh, official voiceovers will be in English, French, German, Italian, Japanese, and Spanish. And then subtitled languages will also be provided for Brazilian Portuguese audiences, Korean Polish, Russian, simplified Chinese, and traditional Chinese. Um, so that is actually really good news um, in terms of uh, you know accessibility um, and you know just just the ability to <laughs> just the the ability to have all these options for people to to enjoy Sonic. You know, because obviously as an American, uh, English is the it has been the official language for many countries, and many countries are are, are coerced into you know learning English because that that's the only way you can really advance in a in a global um, in, uh, economy as we have, right? And and the American audiences have it easy because a lot of people kind of know English and just kind of have to. So we don't understand the struggle. Um, uh, but yeah, I think this is great news that, uh, this is cool because I mean, this is something that for you, uh, your, your, your parents, uh, you know, like, I, I don't know if when, when they, when you were little and you played games and stuff, how often they, they played games with you or anything like that. But I don't know, uh, you know, it would be awesome to have, you know, young kids that are able to, to play now, uh, and have their parents be able to, to play with them that maybe they weren't able to do before because they didn't have those games localized with, you know, subtitled, you know, in Polish or, or Russian or what it might be. Right. Yeah. I mean, like as a kid, definitely, you know, when we played games, they, they understood certain games that don't require heavy dialogue. I think it was easier mm-hmm. when we were younger because uh, I feel like there were more story heavy games in the past uh, 20 years, uh, 15 years or so. Uh and it would be a little more difficult for them to understand those. But as a kid, you know, we had like pinball. We had like a Power Rangers pinball game on PlayStation. I remember playing that with my dad. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, just things like Sonic and all that. It's, it's simple to understand. You know, you jump, you collect the coins, you do the level, and, and it's not that much to learn. But, you know, with like Sonic Frontiers, for example, open world, obviously there's going to be a big story. 
the Sonic games have had, you know, voiceovers since what Sonic Adventure, maybe earlier. I could be wrong, but but yeah, it, it, it's 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 great, you know, to have have these accessible uh, for other countries. Um, so yeah, I I, th- I did want to say I thought it was interesting that. Uh, Korean and the uh, the two uh, Chinese uh, languages were Xbox and PC only. And I was wondering why that was. Uh, I wonder if it's just maybe because it's uh, easier on Windows to, to do that between Xbox and PC and it's not coming to any of the other um, any other versions, it looks like. Yeah, it's possible. It's very possible. Um, I, we should definitely look into that one. But uh, very great news. Uh, so, for those of you who don't know, there it, the Sonic Frontiers game was teased uh, during their Sonic Central live stream last summer around May, and we actually got an official uh, trailer during the Game Awards in December. And for those of you who are very curious about when you can actually get your hands on it, it'll be coming out this year in the holiday season for basically every console that you might have in the past 10, 15 years. So PS5, PS4, Xbox Series X, S, One, Switch, PC, Game Gear. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding about Game Gear. But um, (laughs) yeah, very, very excited. I'll be curious to see actual gameplay for Sonic Frontiers, um, how they actually incorporate open world uh gameplay into sonic i feel like it's completely doable there have been many fans who have created their own version of sonic uh in an open world game um and i'll be looking forward to playing it i you know i've i've been somewhat i guess uh critical of sonic team in the past and i've stated my reservations on on what i think of this game uh in terms of like whether it's going to achieve the success and, and, you know, finally be that amazing open world 3D Sonic game that everyone's been waiting so long for. Whether that may be in the end, I, I don't know. But what I do think is this is going to be one of the best selling Sonic games in a very, very, very long time. I think I think everything is aligning perfectly for Sega right here uh, to, to launch this game in the holiday season because you got all the hype for the Sonic movie. Uh, there's just so much goodwill for Sonic, I think, in the public persona that finally, if 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 Sega can just and Sonic Team can just not screw this up and 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 deliver a, a solid game that the fans can all enjoy and and not have that you know those like memes you know where people are just crapping on it and becomes a joke. <laughs> if they can avoid that um, and you know and kind of right the ship here, I think they have they're gonna have their hand a, a big hit on their hands. Uh, with with Sonic Frontiers, and I, I hope that you know they can achieve that success. So we'll see. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I feel like you know their success, the tides kind of turned around when Sonic Mania came out, and and Sonic in general was kind of in a rut. I I'd, I'd say you know between two thousand six and twenty thirteen or so, um, and it, they, they've had some good Sonic games, but I feel like this is such a uh, an interesting concept f- for that specific character, uh, and especially because you know in the past, what is it, four or five years, we've had obviously Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. You know, we've had uh, Mario doing his own uh, open world style games. Uh, I feel like this this is going to be one, like you said, that will sell quite well compared to the other Sonic games. 
I'll ask one quick question and, and we can move on. But do you think that they're missing a, an amazing opportunity to not do a Sonic the movie video game? Especially when you have Jim Carrey, who you could possibly get as a voice actor, you know, all these other great, um, you know, Ben Schwartz, uh, you could get him in there. It, it, could that not be something that would be super popular if they they made that and and it wasn't total crap? <laughs> That's a million dollar question. Or but, am I uh, asking too much? From I don't from know. I feel like like a, a good video game based on a movie based on a game. Yeah, I mean, how well did that work for Street Fighter the movie? I don't know if it did that well, but I mean, this is this is a different decade and era. Right. Uh, but I don't know, like for me and maybe even for Sega, I feel like it might be like sacrilegious to create like a movie licensed game based on a existing franchise. Uh, and maybe they want to separate the two and keep one as a movie and keep the other stuff as games. Um I'd be interested to see a movie licensed game, but I just feel like, I don't know, like if I see a movie licensed game, uh, I I just think of like Golden Compass or I don't know, those kinds of games, even though like, honestly, I enjoyed the Harry Potter games when they came out, you know, like, like they were technically movie licensed games, uh, but they were still unique enough where it was their own thing. So I don't know. But also Harry Potter as as games, uh, they didn't have an established franchise before that. So there's a difference, right? Sonic came as a video game. Harry Potter were books, which created movies. And then they had these games, which were good. But Sonic is in a different kind of situation. And I, I don't know if it'll work. But I'd be, I'd be, <laughs> I would say just screw it. And I would just want to see what, what it would look like if, if only for the memes and the comedy. But <laughs> oh, definitely. And uh, listeners out there, let us know. I, I would be, we, I'd be interested in hearing what you think if if Sega should make a game based on the Sonic movies. Maybe that'll be our question of the week. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so uh, our final story this week, uh, for those of you who have not heard yet, Sega's opening a new studio in Sapporo, Japan. Um, they were officially established in December, December 1st to be specific, uh, and the studio will be responsible for designing and programming new games for the company. Um, they'll also be handling debugging for Sega software. That could be everything, you know, from games to to you. Who knows? <laughs> um, so Sapporo, for a, a little bit of uh, trivia, it's the largest city in Hokkaido, Japan. Um, the population's around 2 million. Um, so being the cultural and political center of Hokkaido, it does make sense for Sega to establish a new studio there. Um, right now, we don't know of any titles that are in the works at this studio, um, but there's a high possibility that they're basically putting their hands in a couple of actively uh, in development games. Um, so it's also being led by... Uh, Takaya Sagawa, who's a producer on Fantasy Star Online 2, and he is the acting president and CEO of the studio. Um, and earlier in October, we reported on them filing trademarks for the studio. It's just good that we actually had some confirmation and an official launch of the studio um, on December 1st. So I'm excited that they have they have expanded their 
you know, creative uh, capital and created another development studio in Japan. Um, I wish they would also just put another studio in America, maybe, you know, oh, say around Chicago, and then I would totally <laughs> apply. But, you know, I mean, in general, I think it's great that Sega is expanding and that they're they're gaining different studios uh, like Two Point and Amplite, and they're also expanding, um, you know, their own personal uh, in-home brand, so to speak. Um, I think it's great. All right. Well, Marcin, I think that's going to wrap up the news this week. Thank you once again for joining us. We're going to have so much news next week, I'm sure. But for now, we'll have to bid you a fun to do. I hope you have a great day. Okay, now we're going to jump into our special report with Christopher Wenzel. Okay, joining me on the show is Christopher Wenzel, a.k.a. Anti-Chris. He is our Megavision's operations manager, but he went to uh, MagFest here recently, and he did some really good reporting uh, on the Junkbox and Hitbox uh, lawsuit. So I wanted to bring him on and discuss that. So thank you for coming on the show today, Chris. Absolutely. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, before we jump on, though, uh, and get into the kind of the meat of the discussion, I want to give you a quick introduction to the audience. So can you kind of talk uh, uh, to us and, and let us know how you how long you've been with Megavisions, how you joined us and maybe some of the other stuff that you're currently working on, too? Sure. So I started off um, with a podcast uh, called Vetted Games. Uh, this was back in, I believe, the 2016, 2017 time frame. Uh, I had just recently uh, got out of the Marine Corps. Me and a couple uh, Marine Corps and Army buddies got together. We started a podcast. We tried starting up a site. And at the same time, I was blogging a lot on Destructoid. Um, and things just kind of grew from there. There was obviously like a reshuffling of who was going to be active on the podcast, who wasn't. Um, and eventually, all the work that I did with Veta Games became a pseudo resume for me applying for megavisions i got started off as a staff writer and then within a year i was promoted to the editorial staff as the operations manager uh since then i have the scrubverse podcast that i do with uh cory walls um and eddie forte i also have uh, my own personal youtube channel where i go into like game development and uh like short two minute reviews just to keep me busy um, but that, those are, those are my main projects. Uh, sometimes I moonlight as a, a TO for fighting game tournaments online. So those are my, my three passions right now. Right. I was going to say too, that in addition to all the other stuff that you do, you're our resident fighting game expert. So anytime, uh, there's some, something fighting game related, you're always the, the first person we go to. I will die on that cross. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into it. Uh, so you did cover the recent lawsuits uh, between Junkbox, uh, uh, Custom Arcades, and Hitbox. Can you give the audience a quick recap uh, between the companies and, and kind of let us know what this has been, you know, what's been happening? Right. So Hitbox has been around since, um, I want to say, the mid to late 2000s. Um, I recently had sat down and spoke to Sean Huffer. He is one of the co-founders of Hitbox, and he has... He is credited for the first ergonomic box shape um, all-button controller. And back in the day, everyone, like, when these all-button controllers came out, the, the first thing 
that all the the scrubby little fighting game heads was that's cheating because <laughs> people within the FGC are very traditional. Uh, they're a little bit conservative uh, as far as like the generations are concerned. Um, they don't like things like accessibility. They don't care if 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 it's not on an arcade platform or an arcade stick. Uh, you're not doing it right. People got upset about macros back in the day where you hit one button and it does like a two or three button combination. Uh, and this was just the new thing that was coming in. So Sean Huffer is credited as far back as like 2007 as one of the first um, designers for an all button controller. And throughout the years, it's uh, it's picked up a lot of steam uh, to the point where I want to say is uh, – as early as 2015, 2016, we started to see professional players using these all-button controllers. And one of the biggest uh, eye-opening events was when Daigo Umehara switched over to using Hitbox. Daigo is arguably the greatest fighting game player of all time. Um, multi, uh, like numerous Japanese uh, uh, championships. Uh, I believe that he has won Evo a few times. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Uh, but he, he is always credited as being like the, the apex predator in regards to the fighting game scene. Even today, man is pushing 40 and he's still consistently, uh, competing at the highest echelons of Capcom Cup. So when, when people started seeing these, these, uh, controllers coming out, they were just like, oh, that sounds like a great idea because, you know, when you use an arcade stick, you run the risk of getting carpal tunnel and your inputs can be really, really inaccurate because of the way that the inputs are designed on the the lever. So I, I am a hitbox operator. Um, I think that they are the best method to playing these games. At least definitely for me, uh, they're highly accurate, uh, pieces of machinery. And what's going on with the lawsuit is that another company has rose up and is starting to sell their product. Now, within the FGC, you know, people have been using hitboxes and people have been like designing their own. But where we start going into like a weird gray area is when people start selling their own models. Back in 2011, 2010, 2011 timeframe, uh, Hitbox patented the 623 patent, which pretty much lays out um, the utility patent for the Hitbox. It is a, you know, the directional buttons are four buttons. It's laid out in a specific area, a specific pattern where I don't have to. It's not like a, um, a keyboard where you're hitting AS, uh, WASD. You know, it's like my fingers naturally rest on the directional keys. You know, the the jump button is near the thumb. The the left down right buttons are near my fingers. So they patented that design. Now, there have been other people who have been designing their own hitboxes. And for the most part, hitbox, the company has been very receptive to that. They were just like, cool, if you want to you want to mod your own stuff. Just go for it. Where the issue started coming out was, I want to say, around 2018, 2019, and especially in 2020, where companies started offering mod kits for their sticks. So if I had something like a Hori Fighting Edge 2, and it was a traditional stick, 
I can go to another company and have them mod it for me. Now, when I say company, I'm, I'm usually meaning like one to two man operations, right? So right. I can go to them and they can go ahead and mod that uh, piece of hardware. Well, that was kind of uneasy for the Huffer brothers, right? So they were looking at their legal options and when it came out that junk food or uh, customs arcades uh, started selling their own version of the hitbox, which they called a snack box. It's a smaller uh, device. It is probably about a third of the size of your average iPad. Um, and it's, 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 it's essentially a very similar design and an identical utility just on a much smaller scale. Huffer's reaction was, this was just a father and son operation. It's no big deal. But then they got, uh, an, they were announced to be one of the premier vendors for CEO, which is one of the largest fighting game tournaments in the United States. It takes place down in Florida. And at that point, that's when Hitbox said, we have to do something about this now. They called their legal team. They sent out a cease and desist. Junk Food Customs Arcades did not go to CEO, but they responded with their own lawsuit trying to invalidate the 623 patent. So that's where we currently are as far as the patent is concerned. Gotcha, gotcha. So uh, I think you did some really great reporting over the last couple of weeks where you interviewed uh, both uh, Travis uh, Crittenden, uh, the CEO of Junkbox, and then Sean Huffer, like you said, over... Uh, at Hitbox. So talking with both of these uh, people, what did you learn, you know, from from them? So it kind of feels like the angle that Travis is going for is that he wants to be able to just make his product and he doesn't want to be challenged by a quote unquote larger company. Um, he was uh, it was Travis that actually reached out to me after the the article had posted which was very very surprising i never had a situation like that happen before he, they saw the the article on twitter they joined the discord they reached out to me and they were just like hey let's talk shop um it's 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 a very like clear cut this is what they want to do uh they want to be able to prove that the hitbox design is nothing more than a technical upgrade from the traditional controller or the traditional arcade stick. Um, I believe in patent law, there is a clause, and I don't remember the actual terminology for the clause, but if you can prove that the design is not novel to the point where it is not a completely new piece of technology, it is an add-on um, of an existing piece of technology then there should be no utility patent put on that because it is a variation. So right, okay. to get into the details about that, um, arcade sticks utilize PCBs in order to operate and be able to talk between the console itself and the inputs that are coming from your fingertips. Um, if I put my arcade stick and I hook it up into my PlayStation 4, or my PC, or my Xbox, whatever the case is. My PCB is recording all those inputs and translating it into the code that that console or that device understands. That is no different 
from your traditional controller on your Xbox, your PC, your PS4, your PS5, your your Switch, what have you. All all the fight box, the the hitbox is is a variation of that controller. That is what they are claiming. So when they go to the small claims court, or I don't know if it's small claims at this point, but when they go to uh, handle their civil suit, uh, that is their strategy. They want to go out there and they want to say, this is, you know, a common upgrade. And if they're able to do that, that just doesn't, that doesn't only open the floodgates for junk food. That opens the floodgates for everybody. Something that we had noticed is that um, major companies like Hori, like Mad Cats, although Mad Cats has been gone and has just only recently come back. Um, but pretty much any fighting game or, you know, arcade accessory company or manufacturer that has uh, some sort of agreement with PlayStation or Microsoft or what have you, um, they have never made a tr- like a a hitbox, an actual hitbox. They've always just stuck to the arcade sticks. And we never really knew why. And it could very well have been if they make this hitbox, they have to pay royalties or they have to give a portion of that over to hitbox. You know what I mean? And that was going to be my... Yeah, that was going to be my next question, though. Uh, you know, going, you know, looking at hitboxes, you know, patent and, and some of the verbiage and wording for that, because uh, I think that's one of the the discussion points is that it's it's very vague and it, it kind of covers so much that uh, is this giving, you know, essentially, you know, a uh, hitbox, a monopoly on on the whole hitbox style controllers, right? And that was one. That was absolutely one of the questions I that I posed to, to Sean. I'm just like, is the purpose of this this patent to be as vague as possible so that you can maintain as much control over the all button market as possible? Sean is a really nice guy. He is very passionate about what he does. Um, he gave off the. It gave off the attitude or the the air that he just lets the lawyers handle that type of thing. He is only uh, he's only interested in the engineering of these devices and, you know, building something out of Hitbox. Um, whether or not that's true or not, I could not get a definitive answer. He he is very much like that's lawyer stuff. That's lawyer talk. I don't deal with the lawyers. I only deal with like creating this one thing and creating a good product so that people who want this product uh, can can go ahead and buy into it or, you know, get one however they fuck, however they want to. Right. Um, it it kind of goes into like the larger scheme or the larger plan for Hitbox because in their eyes, the next step was start opening uh, licensing operations for other modders to pretty much be, hey, if you have a hitbox, you can send it to these people and they can fix it. Or they can go ahead and have like some sort of uh, hitbox conversion uh, package or something that, you know, is, is open source. And it's just like, hey, this is the hitbox design and these are our licensed manufacturers. These are our licensed modders. 
that was that's that's like their next step. But if you have other people creating these all button controllers, that is your direct competition, and that can uh, potentially uh, put those plans in jeopardy. So yeah, that from the way that I see it, I don't see a reason for Sean to lie about those things. Um, but I'm pretty sure that he doesn't want to take the hard stance of, yes, we wanted to make this as vague as possible, uh, because that just ultimately makes him look bad. That makes Hitbox look bad, especially with the um, the reputation that they currently have in the FGC at the moment. Sure, sure. So uh, so what, what's next you know, for this? Do you, do you think we're going to see some resolution soon? Do you think they may settle out of court or... But what's going to happen and what, when might we see something, you know, next? So the, the current lawsuit is requesting a trial by jury. Um, so I do not see this getting settled out, uh, outside of court. Not at all. Um, Travis is very adamant about having the 623 patent wiped out. Um, which, I mean, like there, there's pros and cons to that for everybody you can say which then is basically opens the floodgates to for any company to start training their own and yeah right exactly okay. for for really anybody um and you know i've i've said that in my article it's it's like you you then open up competition to companies that can mass produce at cheaper rates um and have access to these uh these chipsets to get this out the door at a rate much faster than either one of the companies because Hitbox is, is already facing tons of delays with their current stock that they haven't even shipped out. They're, they're like three months, four months uh, behind schedule. And wow. junk food is possibly facing the same thing because they can only make so many orders uh, per, per quarter. Like there is a cap of what it is that they can do. If Hori got their hands on that, if, if, mad cats got their hands on that you're not going to see the same issues like no way you're not going to see the same issues now uh both parties are very confident that they can either take down the patent or protect their patent i think that there is a lot of um i don't necessarily want to say bad blood but for example this is not the first company that hitbox has sent a uh, cease and desist to i can't confirm who they sent the second or the I should say the first cease and desist to. But there are a number of companies and manufacturers and modders out there who have visibly taken down their uh, their listings for all button controllers. Um, right now, if you go to Marvelous Customs, all of their hitbox conversion kits or their uh, proprietary uh, I think they call it like the average Joe or the CEO. They have two models for it. Um, all those have been taken down. You can't bu- you can't purchase them right now. Uh, Arcade Shock, their listings are completely down for all of their all button controllers. So there's there's a lot of fingers that you can point to and say, hey, this is the person that you that you targeted, or is this person or or what? There's a lot of people that are probably looking at this lawsuit. And hoping for junk food customs to come out on top, because then that means that they can move back into the market um, and take a piece of that from Hitbox. 
Interesting, interesting. So, well, it, it's definitely we'll have to keep a close eye on this, and 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 you know, if when, once we learn something more, we'll definitely report on it on the website. But in the meantime, if you're listening, definitely go to the website and, and check out uh, the articles there uh, on megavisions.net because uh, I, I think it was some fantastic reporting. Again, uh, he actually has video interviews loaded on there uh, on the page as well, so. Uh, you can read it or watch it and listen to it that way. So be sure to check that out. Um, but let's turn our attention to another subject real quick. Uh, you recently uh, went to MAGFest uh, over at the Gaylord in the National Harbor, uh, Maryland. I, I was planning on going, uh, but I ended up contracting COVID uh, over the holidays uh, and I, I had to miss it. This was the first MAGFest I've missed since I started going uh, back in the day. I think it was like 2012 or 2013, something wow. like that. So, yeah, it's, it was weird. And may, there might have been one I missed around there, maybe. But for the most part, I've been going for quite a long time. And I love that show. Uh, it was a bummer. But it was it just I, even leading up to it, I didn't feel that as excited as I did in the past. It just, maybe it was the whole COVID stuff. But you did go. I want to know, how how was it overall? Like, you know. What uh, it had to be kind of weird, right? Yeah, so Magfest is kind of like mecca for me, right? This is this is my home um, convention that I go to. Uh, Magfest is the location where the Gaylord is only about forty minutes away from me, um, and of course it's like it's art. I think I believe it's the largest uh, gaming related convention on the East Coast, so like it's a big deal for me. Uh, every single year to to go to that. Um, this year was significantly smaller. Significantly. I think that uh, last year they sold 25,000 tickets. Um, this year they sold 10. And I'm not convinced that they had 10,000 people showed up. Um, I had noticed when I went there on Thursday and even on Friday that the crowds were vacant. Um, there was only like a handful of people walking by, uh, not a whole lot of people were in cosplay. Um, a lot of the, the congestion was found in like the dealer's room and the console room, um, a little bit in the arcade room, but it was, it was just a significantly more intimate experience, I guess you can say. Uh, they did not have as many panels. They did not, um, they did not have the amenities open. Uh, to everyone, I think, or when I say open to everybody, they weren't, they weren't traditionally 24 hours as they usually are. Um, right. they closed them down from four o'clock in the morning to 8 a.m., which, I mean, if you're going to close it down at any point, that's arguably the best time to do so, right? Um, but yeah, it was just, it was just smaller and there was not a whole lot of stuff that was going on. The first day, I think the only panel that I personally was invested in was the video game museum panel with um with I forget what her name is I think it's like Kelsey uh Hewlin or Kewin or whatever um but the video game museum did a panel on video game preservation and you uh, know what counts as preservation what counts as pri- piracy um and that one was pretty good um on Friday it, it again there was not a whole lot of stuff that was going on i think that the uh the panel that i went to was the legal review um there was three a panel with like a few lawyers and they were talking about a lot of high profile um 
video game lawsuits, like the stuff that's going on between Nintendo and emulation websites. Um, they started getting into like the the stuff that's going on between Apple and Epic. Uh, and it was it was relatively informative. But I mean, like if you've been paying attention to the news, then you already know what's going on. It's just interesting hearing it from a lawyer's perspective and like how other cases unrelated to like the gaming sector are affecting uh, these cases. Um, so, I mean, like the panels were still really good quality. I think that making it smaller kind of made it more personable because people were able to like have conversations with the panelists instead of like this massive gathering of all these people in the room and you're just talking into the air and, uh, that being the end of the panel, like hold all questions for the last five minutes or whatnot. Um, it, it was still all in all very good. I wanted to ask one other thing, because there's a report from Kotaku that came out today. Uh, the, I guess the official numbers that that MAGFest is reporting was, uh, as far as attendee numbers, was 10,581 mm-hmm. uh, is what they tallied. But uh, some interesting COVID-related stuff. Uh, apparently 59 people have tested positive. Of, of, of those uh, you know, 10,000 and change attendees, 59 uh, tested positive. Uh, of those, 51 were symptomatic, eight were asymptomatic, uh, 25 vaccine boosted, 34 weren't. Um, so I wanted to ask, what were the uh, the COVID measures, you know, uh, during MAGFest that you noticed? Yeah, so the the requirement was before you can even pick up your badge, you had to have your vaccine card. Uh, they were very, very strict on that. Um I know this because the person that I went to MAGFest with forgot their COVID card at home. So they had to drive all the way back to Pennsylvania Ooh. and then come back the same day, uh, which was rough. Yes, but they, they, the, the methods of which they were validating is you either have your actual COVID card or you had um, certified um, like the pub, uh, public or Department of Health or whatever the equivalent is. Um applications that can prove yes you've had your covid shots the and they go validate with your doctors and however those systems operate um so beyond that you weren't allowed to have your mask off uh if your mask was off they had on-site police come and direct you just like you need to have your mask on so that was uh, I also think that the the concert or the con goers handled it really really well as well. It does sound like you said the uh, the the staff there at the Gaylord and uh, you know the, the 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 people helping run Magfest were doing a pretty good job of of ensuring people were following the safety measures and everything and and those, so that's good to hear and hopefully that can that can you know be encouraging news for you know other uh, convention uh, you know planners. Uh, you know, going forward, hopefully we won't have many of these cancellations anymore, because I'll tell you what, uh, if PAX East, uh, knock on wood, gets canceled, I'm going to be very, very bummed out. Um, but we'll, we'll yeah, hope that, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, Chris, thanks for, for joining the show. Uh, you know, we'll have to have you come back on again real soon. But in the meantime, you know, where can people find you online and, and what other projects you have coming up? Sure. So my my baby right now is my YouTube channel. So it might be a little bit difficult to search just because when you type in anti-Chris into the search bar, you're going to get a lot of things that say anti-Christ. 
Uh, so you, you will have to, you will have to narrow down the search to just Antichrist. But you can find me on YouTube, uh, Antichrist. I've covered, um, game development on games like Katana Zero. I've done a Guilty Gear retrospective. I've done, uh, work with Anarchy Reigns. And right now, uh, I'm working on a major project. It is surrounding everything concerning the GameCube. So in between, uh, my last video and my GameCube video, uh, I am doing two mini two minute reviews on indie games and obscure games that you can find also on my YouTube channel and on TikTok. In addition to that, if you want to find me on Twitter, uh, it is at AntichrisSV. Um, th- those would be the two best areas to find me. And also listen to the Scrubverse podcast. Uh, Scrubverse podcast is me, uh, Corey Walls, Eddie Forte. We have Scott Morrison join us from time to time uh it's 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 a good time it's very very informal we'll say that nice. gotcha and and you have some uh some content uh, upcoming in, in issue two right i do i do i cover the um the closure or the the birth and death of sega studios australia that is my big feature my big contribution to the magazine in addition to a review for shimigami tensei 5 ninja spirit and also uh, a top five for old school xbox games so definitely check that out yeah good stuff a lot of content here uh we'll have to get you to come back on in, in a week or two uh to talk about that sega studios australia piece because you and i could you know talk for hours on that we, we did a lot of work behind the scenes to make it happen but really good stuff and i think people will really enjoy reading that article Longtime sega nerds are going to enjoy it so be sure to pick up issue two but with that said we're out of time thanks again chris for joining us i'm sure you'll be back on real soon yep thanks for having me thanks again chris with that report now we're going to turn our attention to our guest interview with john trevor aka xbuds all right so john thanks for joining us uh today like i said you're our first official guest uh on the new megavision show for 2022 so thank you for for joining us it's an honor yeah so I wanted to bring you on just to introduce you to kind of the Megavisions audience. Uh, you've been a uh, contributing writer uh, to Megavision since our issue one relaunch, and you're also going to have some content in issue two, uh, which we'll talk about later. But first, I thought it'd be fun to have a quick chat and, like I said, introduce you to the audience. And you're basically one of the biggest Xbox fanboys on Twitter that I know of. And so I want to <laughs> kind of learn more about that. And, uh, and share your your love with uh, Xbox with our audience. So For sure. uh, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, where did you grow up and how did you first get introduced to, to video games? So uh, I'm a Canadian and I've lived in Canada my whole life. Um, I started out on the East Coast of Canada and now I'm living on the West Coast. So I've kind of traveled all across Canada, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, right now I'm living in Victoria, British Columbia, which is uh, uh, on an island. It's like a big island just off the west coast of Canada. So, um, yeah, I just uh, just keep playing games and enjoying my time in Canada. It's it's great. Um, how I started playing games was just like Nintendo back in the day. Um, actually, that's I think I skipped. I had uh, something like an Atari. It was actually a Gemini. So it was like basically like a clone of atari it could gotcha. play atari games 
Um, so I started with that, and then um, my gaming passion didn't really ignite until uh, the classic Nintendo, like many people uh, of our age group <laughs> who started uh, gaming, right? We started with Nintendo, so. True thing. Um, and it was shortly after that, I just moved straight into Sega. I just, you know, saw Sonic the Hedgehog playing on my friend's system, and it was over from then. I was just like, I was done deal. <laughs> That's awesome. So was, was you know, Sega and Sonic a big part of your childhood uh, early on, like in, in terms of video games and things like that? Um, yeah, I'd say so. Like, uh, Sega was always just kind of there. Uh, it had that cool effect, like, um, you know, the Genesis was uh, a sleek, kind of s- sexy looking system compared to the Super Nintendo. So I was like a Sega kid. I didn't actually have a Super Nintendo until much later in life. Um, so I grew up totally on the Sega side of things and like played as much as I could going to like used game shops and like trading in what I had. Uh, constantly trying to play new games um, just by like being a thrifty kid. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I was the same way. My younger brother and I, we did the exact same thing. And I regret it a lot now looking back because I have very few of my original games uh, because we would just trade them in when the new system would come out. And because our parents, they buy us games, but they weren't all about throwing down all the money to get systems and things like that. So when we needed to do that and a new system came out, we'd have to just put all our our games in paper bags and take them to Funko Land and trade that. Yeah, stuff in. that's how it works. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, right? <laughs> like, and, you know, oftentimes I would just take chances. This is like, well, I don't know what game this is. It was $6 in bins. So. <laughs> and you just kind of do that. You just get to get to really experience a lot of different things. So I was lucky and fortunate that, you know, I was able to do that back in the day. So. Um, and so it's it's cool because, you know, you started talking about, uh, you know, how you first got into to Sega and how you got introduced to games. But you were telling me a few weeks ago that you actually started a Sega Saturn fan site back in the day. So but how did you find yourself creating a Sega Saturn fan site, you know, a few years later? And it was the dawn of the internet. Like, we're talking, you know, mid-90s when, like, the internet was just starting out and Sega just surprised the world by launching the Saturn, like, just (laughs) out of nowhere. It just came out and people were just like, what? How did that happen? Um, And I had to have it. And, you know, I'd been saving up just through allowance and, you know, gifts from grandma and all that kind of stuff. And uh, in the end, I just just had to get a Saturn and... um, just that passion of playing uh, those games really drove me to to try something with the internet. And I was like, well, you know, I had a best friend who taught me how to do HTML a little bit and Photoshop. Um, and he's just like, here, this is how you can make a website. So I'm like, okay, well, in my mind, I'm just like, I'll oh, combine these two things. I love the Saturn and I really like the idea of like building something on the internet. Um, so I just started piecing together um, a website. I called it Sega Saturn Online, um, just to be, you know, as official sounding as possible. <laughs> I didn't have the domain name. I didn't know anything about getting like a .com. It was just like hosted on some, you know, free server somewhere. GeoCities right? like, or Tripod. Something to that effect. Yeah, I think it was called Magi or something okay. like that. It was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there, you could always get those like uh, URL forwarding things to oh, make right. it look a little bit more official. So I, you know, it, it looked it looked cool. And but the thing about that website, um, I pr- I was taking a lot of pride in how it looked. 
Um, I wanted it to be visually stunning, so I spent a lot of effort learning Photoshop and, uh, you know, learning how to do animated GIFs uh, back in the day, So, which took a long, long time because you have to do it frame by frame. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't have be about that life back then. That must have took you forever. <laughs> it took me forever, but yeah. for me, it was like entirely a visual thing. I'm just like, when people go to this website, I want people to be like, holy crap, this looks cool. Because a lot of websites back then, you know, the internet, early internet websites were like extremely basic, very text oriented with just a you know, couple sparse graphics here and there. So. Um, I, I learned the technical side of making cool graphics and just kind of push that, put my whole passion into making that website. And uh, it became more successful than I ever could have imagined um, back then. And I was just too young to know what to do with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious, isn't it? Yeah. But well, that's was, so uh, funny. So what, what did you guys cover on the site? Were you were you just reviewing games or were you doing like news or stuff? Like what was your what was the whole kind of gist of the, the site? Uh, it was it was definitely uh, all of the above. So I just looked at other websites like IGN because IGN was back. They were around back then. For sure. um, so, you know, I, I saw that and I was like, OK, let's go with something like that and just cover everything. I didn't know how I was going to do it because just one person. <laughs> I didn't have a team. Um, so I bit off a lot more than I could chew, which is all part of the learning process. Um, sure. So but, you know, I did reviews, previews. Um, I think I just called the section views because I'm like, well, hmm. it's kind of redundant to have reviews and previews. So I just called it views. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so you'd go in there and you would just see, you know, the upcoming games and the games that have come out. Um, but it was all Saturn focused for sure. Like um, and people were emailing me. I got some good connections. Uh, I don't know exactly what positions they were in in the industry, but I was getting games in the mail. Free games. Which, that's what it's about back then, right? Free games in the mail. I think I was technically too young to have a job. So <laughs> it was just like, you know, making do with what I had and uh, had an amazing collection of awesome Saturn games like Last Bronx and, uh, you know, Panzer Dragoon Saga and like oh. the whole all of it, all of it. So, uh, and I would just write about all that stuff as much as I could. Um, and I had sort of like a, you know, a dream, like sort of ideal version of what I wanted Sega to be. Like I was kind of, uh, putting some ideas out there in hopes that if you build it, someone might notice it. Like, and I remember harping about a Sonic collection. I'm like, we have discs now we could put every Sonic game on a disc. And I was like harping about that. I'm like, why don't we do that? And then, you know, a few months later, Sonic Jam came out. I'm like, yes, finally, like <laughs> we've got something like that. So that, that's awesome. And so what ended up, how long did you run the site for? It was a, probably a couple of years, um, as much as I could. Um, and, it, you know, it, and then just things kept happening. Sega kept evolving and my life kept evolving. And sure. Um, it was all a learning process and, you know, I think I tried something similar for the Dreamcast, but it just, it didn't quite pan out. Um, you know, I tried to make a Dreamcast website and I tried to make an Xbox website in the past and it's just, you know, you, you know, there's lessons to be had and learned from, from doing all of these things, as you know, so. <laughs> oh, for sure. And, and, and also trying to take, uh, you know, on an, an entire website by yourself and, and fill that with content. Uh, it's, e it, I wouldn't say it's easy when you're young, but you have time 
uh, to your side, which you you could probably attest that as you get older, uh, you get less and less of that. And 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 so yeah. uh, I feel you on that. Is it is it still around in any form at all? Uh, not not that I could find. You know, yeah, I've searched the archives. The, uh, you know, the history of the Internet and uh, the most I could ever find was just like a small emblem that I used for my logo. Um, And it might still be on my hard drive somewhere buried in one of my folders from, you know, many, many years ago. I have to try and find it. So <laughs> I have about 10 hard drives just sitting around in, in my back office and I need to get I, I think they make some easy to to, to connect, uh, you know, like accessories for those now so you don't actually have to physically like load them in each time in your your computer i think i've got some old stuff on there from our old websites back in the day too because i've we've lost so much from all the different like um mergers or or migrations to different servers and things like that there's been times where we've lost content and i look back on all of all that stuff especially for fan sites i think they make uh i think they're very important for cataloging the history of of games and and a lot of times where the bigger sites weren't talking about maybe some of the smaller games uh or or stories that were being discussed around that time you know in the 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 mid 90s all the way up to the you know the 2000s and stuff so um it's a shame when some of those fan sites they go down and and they're not properly preserved so I, i i am happy that we do have the you know the internet um you know uh database or whatever but it's a shame that we we do lose some of those things, and it sucks when it's near and dear to your heart, heart like that. I know. Heartbreaking. We've man. all lost those files, man, and it's just the worst. Um, uh, hard drives are mechanical; they break, you know. So <laughs> these things happen. Hard lessons to learn, though, because like there's some really beloved things that you might have put a lot of time into, and then so it's like hard drives. Like, nope, I'm gonna start <laughs> clicking now. Oh no. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, all right, so let's. Uh, I want I want to talk because you have. An interesting uh, gamer tag, XBuds. Uh, I'd like to talk about the uh, the origins of that. Can you tell me about that a little bit, and and how do you get the how do you come up with that one? So XBuds um, is it's kind of embarrassing because you know this is we're talking twenty years ago. I was you know fresh fresh into the workforce at that point, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was just me and my buddies sitting down around the Xbox. We just got it. Um, Xbox Live came out, I think, 2002. So um, we were just creating our gamer tags and just having a great time eating pizza. <laughs> we were enjoying uh, some festivities <laughs> and just kind of like having a great time. And just it, it just came from me probably being too stoned. And <laughs> we just I just was like, what if I combined Xbox and weed and it was just one of those like stupid stoner moments where I was just like, X buds, man. <laughs> it's it was already just, the, the label's already green. It was gr- it was all green. And it was just <laughs> it was kind of like my mind went boom and we laughed for like 20 minutes about it. Um, as I was typing in all of my details and my credit card information. So like <laughs> this just, is gonna be awesome. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> exactly. And it just kind of stuck, you know. Um it's a it's a fun gamer tag, and uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends still from that era. Uh, not a lot. I've got a handful, a small handful of friends from that era, uh, and I you know they still call me buds. <laughs> so. 
So that's awesome. It's great yeah. when you can kind of keep those same friends from the early days of Xbox Live, you know, um, and throughout today. There's not many of my friends from those early days that I still have uh, on my my original friends list because I think I've changed my name a few times and I had a pretty embarrassing one like back in the day too, but I changed that <laughs> a long time ago. So kudos <laughs> to you for, for holding strong with your OG gamer tag. Holding strong. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I do think that uh, you, I, I do love uh, a lot of the content that you post uh, on, on Twitter and social media. Uh, you're always sharing like positive fun information and, 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 uh, also, like the new games and stuff that are coming out, I love seeing that because I I learned a lot of the stuff uh, from you. But I wanted to ask, like, as as you started, you know, I guess going from Sega, the Saturn, and the, the, the Dreamcast to the Xbox, and you really got more ingratiated with that whole platform. What was it about Xbox that became kind of like your new? This is my new thing, and why oh, not play already? You already know. You already know. It's because of Sega. It's because of Sega's like migration to the Xbox console. Like that whole, like the Xbox was the spiritual successor to the Dreamcast. It is. It's what it was. Um, you know, Sega made that deal with Microsoft. Microsoft's logo was on the Dreamcast, so there was like, you know, there was already a relationship there. And Microsoft took that same vision that Sega had with the Dreamcast on wanting to like promote online play and community, um, and they ran with it. And then Sega supported them by putting all of their amazing games on there, like, uh, you know, Crazy Taxi 3 and like uh, Jet Set Radio Future. Like, how could I not want Jet Set Radio <laughs> right. Future? Like they they had me they had me at and that. There was a pack in with uh, was it uh, was it Sega GT two thousand two, or that became yeah they they yeah. did like a Jester Radio slash Sega GT right. uh, like combo which was basically yeah everybody had that for a while. I think People that was also that technically one of the most uh, like highest selling games technically even though it was like a bargain Probably. big game towards the end. Probably so. I always thought that was a strange mix to include Sega GT and Jet Set Radio Future because they're just so polar opposite game experiences. Right. But yeah. I guess they both fit with like what Xbox is trying to get from a catalog and an identity type thing. They're both kind of edgy sports games, I guess. So I don't know. I wasn't making those decisions. <laughs> you know, props to Sega for making a Gran Turismo. <laughs> right they're just they went for it they knew they didn't have anything like that and so that they went for it and it was pretty good i liked sega gt the graphics were pretty decent so um but for me sega it's always the light-hearted arcade like the the blue skies the bright colors the fun upbeat music that stuff resonated with me and that's what i like to you know continue playing i still play sega all the time like my Saturn, my Dreamcast, uh, Genesis, all that stuff is still hooked up. Um, That's awesome. So I'm just a big, big Sega nerd um, at right. heart. <laughs> That's great. I, yeah. I was going to say, though, too, because you, you talked about how the, you know, the Dreamcast or the Xbox was basically the successor and kind of the spiritual successor. And it, it had so much uh, of kind of the, the Sega spirit, I guess you could say, within Uh and I was watching the, the recent documentaries that Xbox and Microsoft have been putting out on YouTube that just cataloged the, the history, what went into making Xbox. It's been it's awesome. I think it's a six part series. I would highly suggest everyone watch it. And there's a lot of Sega information uh, in there. And there was a lot of 
there was a whole portion where they talk about uh, how close they came, Microsoft and Sega, to to you know a purchase or some sort of uh, collaboration, and it was really interesting and how close it really did come because we've talked it, about yeah. a lot of there's always been those rumors. But to hear them actually from the executives who were making those decisions and stuff, it was really interesting, I thought. It would have been nice if they could have seen that through back in the day. But, you know, everyone has to go through these lessons, even major corporations like Microsoft. You got to make mistakes and learn from them. Um, And uh, I think they have a really good relationship with Sega. Maybe not as good as it should be. Like, I would have liked to see... You know, all those Yakuza games should have been on the Xbox from the start, not like an afterthought. Um, and like, but we've got stuff like Fantasy Star is back, which is fantastic, near and dear to my heart. So it's it's cool to see that stuff uh, continuing that relationship with Sega and Microsoft um, in some some fashion. Absolutely, so. and I think as as we've seen this this last console generation from you know where Xbox One began and and where they ended. I think you saw that relationship with Sega probably uh, strengthen a lot more, especially towards the end with with a lot of releases, like you said, PSO2 and and some other stuff. Uh, I would want to talk to you about, you know, going into this year um, and onward, what are some of the things you're most excited about, um, either from uh, from Xbox or even the Sega perspective? I'd like to to know what you think and what you're excited for for this year. Um, Well, we just came off such an amazing, like, high point at the end of 2021, like, getting Forza and Halo all at once. Um, it was just such a, a high peak. Um, so I'm just kind of still riding off of that. Um, honestly, from Microsoft this year, there's not anything major um, in terms of the franchises that we're used to, uh, like their major staples, like Forza and, and uh, Gears of War and Halo and all that stuff. I'm not expecting a whole lot from those things. So uh, I'm curious to see what they do with the developers that they have recently acquired, um, like Starfield. Um, I'm curious if that's yeah. going to actually launch on time, um, if it actually does make its 2022 like holiday date. Uh, I would love to see that happen. Um, but Microsoft has shifted. Like They're such a Game Pass-oriented um, company, so I'm super curious to see what kind of deals they end up striking this year, what major releases launch straight into the service. Um, all that stuff is going to be really cool to to witness. I think we've got like uh, the, the Rainbow Six from Ubisoft, Rainbow Six Extraction, which is coming out like next week or yeah, it's it's really soon. Anyway, I think it's right, like yeah. just less than a week away. Um, that was unexpected, so. That's the kind of thing that I'm hoping for Microsoft this year is those like unexpected, like, wait a second, that game is just part of the service. Like, that's crazy because they're they're like a services company. You know, they're they're more focused on that with all the cloud gaming and being able to play from your phone, your tablet and and all that stuff. But yeah, in terms of big, big games from Microsoft. Yeah, it's, it's just Starfield and and some of the other ones that they've got coming that are baking uh, behind the scenes. Um Sega, I'm like big time looking forward to Sonic Frontiers because I've oh, yeah. always been a Sonic fan, uh, which is a detriment sometimes because <laughs> not every Sonic game is really great. Um, like Sonic Forces, I just couldn't I couldn't deal with it. Um, mm. That was a tough Sonic one. Frontiers, that was a tough one. It was a tough one. <laughs> they they made some curious decisions in that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> graphics were all right, but besides that. Uh, but yeah, no, Sega, I think I'm all about what they're doing with Fantasy Star. 
Um, they finally started adding new content to Fantasy Star, which is nice. Like, there's finally a new area to explore. Oh, that's good. Um, yes, yes. Uh, so it's nice that they're still working on that. Um, and I hope that they continue to do that. Because Fantasy Star is just therapeutic to me. It was my most played game in 2020 and 2021. Fantasy you Star killed too. that game. I I, I I tried to start playing it early on, and it, I, I I just didn't I, did, I didn't connect with it. I guess, but I've seen so many awesome costumes that you've posted on Twitter. Just all the different crazy stuff. If if everyone looks uh, in issue one, because you actually did a preview, you wrote a preview in issue one uh, on uh, Fantasy Star two and online two, I should say. Uh, but you, we used all of your captured screens that you took of your characters in there, and they're all like different Sega characters and, and costumes. It's wacky. It's so much fun. I just had a lot of fun with that for sure. I was just like, you know, I could be a generic like space guy with a sword, but like they they have all these extra costumes in there, and they let you play as Sonic characters if you want to. So, you know, I just had a lot of fun just playing with that stuff and just exploring that they're 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 creating like their character creator is like so robust. Like you can just attach any accessory to any part of your body, like any of your fingers, like you could, you could just do anything with it. So uh, it's just a lot of fun. So that's, that's awesome. Um, so we, we talked about your, your um, what you wrote in last issue when we talked a little bit that you do have uh, some more content coming up in issue two, which is going to release in February. Uh, I want to talk to you about this game because I I was pretty unfamiliar with it before I, I saw uh, it come across when I was reading your article. And it's it's, it's uh, tell me about it. What, what What's the name of the game and, and introduce it to the audience if you could. Yeah. So um, I found myself uh, playing a lot of Sega Saturn recently because I've just like you know, managed to hook it up really beautifully to my TV. It's going through like an open source scan convert. All oh, the pixels look so great on my TV now. So I'm like enjoying my Saturn again. So I'm, I went through a bunch of games and, and discovered this game called Cyberbots uh, from Capcom, uh, which is a fighting game. You know, I didn't actually play it back in the day. It was just kind of slipped under the radar. Um, I think I was just more focused on Sega stuff back then instead of what, what Capcom was doing. Um, but Cyberbots is just a super fun fighting game with like a really amazing aesthetic it's just got the coolest looking art style like giant robots uh and it's just very uh 90s sci-fi anime kind of vibe to it and uh it's just so much fun so I, i had a lot of fun going through that and uh you know when i had an opportunity to write about that i'm like yeah absolutely i'm gonna write something great about this game because it was i think it went under the radar uh, it's got some really cool uh, little surprises in there for fans. Like you can play as Akuma from the Street Fighter games, except he's like a mech robot. So uh, how cool is crazy. that? It's so <laughs> cool. Awesome. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, and you can actually play that game on modern consoles now through like a Capcom compilation. Um, Capcom Arcade Classics or something. I forget the name of it at the moment. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so you can play. It's like... It's less than two. It's like two dollars if you want to just play Cyberbots. Um, so you can do that. I think it's on all consoles like PlayStation, Xbox, Switch. Um, so everyone will have the opportunity to try that game if they don't necessarily have a Saturn. So uh, it definitely, it was it was fun to kind of like shine a spotlight on something from that uh, era. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I saw the the screens and I instantly fell in love. I love uh, the the character art and the design. I mean, it, it's very Capcom-esque uh, and especially 90s uh, style. So if, if you dig that, and who doesn't? I mean, it's so gorgeous. It, it, it looks beautiful. And I loved, especially in arcades, if, if, if a fighting game had giant sprites, I was all there. Like, I loved that. And that was one reason why I was always a big fan of the Neo Geo stuff as a kid, even though I never was able to afford that stuff. I only in magazines could I, you know, drool over those things. But, uh, you know, that is also it, it, it kind of took me back to those times when I saw those screens. I was like, man, we, we definitely need I would love to, to do this, uh, to do something on Cyberbots in the magazine. So I am happy uh, that we ended up doing that. And, and thank you for for writing on that. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm excited. And I'm, hopefully our audience will uh, to read about it if they don't know already about Cyberbots as well. Yeah. And, and I think that that's it. It's, it's good to shine a spotlight on something that didn't get a lot of attention back then um, because it was a Japanese only game. So a ton of gamers in North America and Europe just never had a chance to, to try it out. So um, it's cool now that, you know, the world has gotten a lot smaller thanks to the internet, we can kind of show people all these things that they might have missed back in the day uh, or people who'd never even knew about it. So, and I think that that's going to be a reoccurring theme um, with Megavisions. It's like you can shine a spotlight on some of the classics um, that people might still want to play today because games still hold up. Games are fun no matter when they came from. So it's it's nice to be able to to, to go back and explore that stuff. Especially to go back and, and, and play the games that uh, that still hold up really well. Because not all of them do, but this one certainly does. Uh, and so, awesome. Th- I, I, thanks again, John, for coming on the show. I uh, really appreciate it. We definitely got to get you on again. But where can everyone find you before we take off? Like, What's, what's your online handles for, for everyone? So I'm at xbuds. Uh, in pretty much everything. Uh, it's my gamer tag. Uh, it's my Twitter. So Twitter is definitely the best place to find me. I'm on there all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, just shout me out. I'm just uh, just a text away. You know, you can, my DMs are open. You can just tweet <laughs> at me. Uh, I like to keep it positive on Twitter, um, as you mentioned. Uh, and, you know, it's just happy to, I'm happy to, you know, game and communicate with other gamers on there. So. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks again for for jumping on. We'll get you on again soon. Sweet. Thank you, man. Thanks again, XBuds, for joining the show. I had a lot of fun with this week's guests, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we go, though, I want to encourage you to check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash megavisions, where you can subscribe to a physical or digital issue of the magazine. We publish quarterly, and issue two is shipping in February. It features an amazing Psychonauts cover by Sketchcraft, as well as a full review of Psychonauts 2 and our first developer retrospective, where we take a deep dive into the origins of Double Fine, the developers of Psychonauts, Brutal Legend, Grim Fandango, and many more. For our Sega nerds out there, we have a great feature by Graham Mason titled The Making of Comic Zone, where he gives us an inside look into the creation of one of the Genesis' most unique-looking games. We also have reviews of Shin Megami Tensei V, Gainog, Knights of the Old Republic on Switch, as well as retro reviews on Tomba, Ninja Spirit, and Cyberbots. We have much more packed in this issue, so be sure to jump on Patreon now so you don't miss out. Go to www.patreon.com megavisions to subscribe today. And if you're looking for more Megavisions merch, be sure to visit the Mega Shop at www.megavisions.net shop where you can buy back issues of the magazines, 
posters, and much more. And remember, we also ship worldwide. All right, that is going to do it for this week, folks. Uh, really had a, a good time, and I hope that you enjoyed this show. We'd love to hear your feedback, good or bad. So if you enjoyed it, or if you think that we need some more work to do, please let us know. Uh, I really want to, to make this show uh, really great, as great as we can, and I would love to get your feedback on that. So, so until next time, stay safe and be kind. 